Season 2 of the Olympic Mindset Podcast is brought to you by Pearson, the world's leading learning company. Hello and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset Podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Olympic Mindset Podcast. This week we bring you the amazing Joe Foster. In case you don't know, Joe is the founder of Reebok. We are very privileged to have the founder and former CEO of a company that was valued to be worth $4 billion. The company went from shoe manufacturers in Bolton to dominating the athletics wear market in America. I don't want to talk for too much before today's episode because we're very privileged to have Joe with us. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and if you do, please subscribe. That really helps us out. Enjoy today's episode of the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Okay, so today on the Olympic Mindset Podcast, we have the amazing Joe Foster with us. Joe is the founder of Reebok and very recently wrote the untold story of a British family firm becoming a global brand, the book called Shoemaker. Joe, I've read this book and it's absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Dominic, it's great. It's, it really is a pleasure to meet up with you and have this conversation. And I'm really glad you've read the book. So I do want to start, Joe. My, my first question, I've got lots of questions for you today. I was fascinated by, by, by your journey taking a company from literally nothing to be worth $4 billion. Um, The first question is something I never realised, that the, the running spike was designed and created in Bolton by your grandfather, J.W. Foster. Well, yes, my grandfather, J.W. Foster, he was Joe Foster as well. My grandfather was also Joe Foster. Um, born in 1880, by uh, 1895, that's when he is credited with, uh, with inventing the running spike. <clears throat> and he, he did this because uh, his father was a confectioner. And uh, my grandfather did not want to be a confectioner. So he... He liked what his, uh, his grandfather was doing. His grandfather was a cobbler, repairing shoes down in Nottingham. And he used to go visit a lot. And uh, not only did his grandfather repair street shoes, he also repaired cricket boots. And cricket boots in those days had spikes or studs in the bottom. And he, you, you can imagine, can't you? He asked his grandfather, why, why do they have studs in the bottom of these shoes, granddad? And I'm sure his granddad said, well, it gives them grip. Because when they're bowling, batting, or even in the field, you, you don't need to be slipping. You need, you need that grip. So, obviously, this was a bit of a light bulb moment for my grandfather. He, he was a member of his local athletic club. And uh, he, he was about midfield on most of the times when he went out and did a 5,000 metres or whatever. Uh, and he thought, if I get a pair of spikes, because we run on cinder tracks, Will, if I put spikes in the bottom of my shoes, will that help? Well, he did put spikes in, and it did help. And he came a very unlikely second when he was wearing those, uh, those shoes, which, of course, that was the start of a business because all his, all his clubmates just looked at him and said, hmm, what are those things you're wearing, Joe? <laughs> and obviously, 
Well, he had to show them. And uh, they all wanted a pair. From then on, they all wanted a pair. So that is credited with that invention. And, you know, I mean, obviously he took the idea from cricket boots, but he put them into running shoes. So that's where the spike running shoe came from. And that's where the success for J.W. Foster came from. I mean, they kind of found a real niche in the market, didn't they? I know they were successful anyway um, in their own kind of right making shoes, but obviously the running spikes was was quite a, a significant shift. So how important is legacy and was legacy to you at the very start of your journey when you set out? Well, I, I guess it's legacy, but really what you can say is that's what we knew. That was the business. We, we were in that business, so we knew it. So being in that business... Um, <clears throat> When the J.W. Foster Company, which was then run by my father and uncle, when we saw Jeff and myself, we saw it fading away. It was going down. It was a, a failing company. And uh, because my father and uncle just did not get on together, they just, if they spoke, they, the, the words were not very uh, ones you could really repeat. And uh, Jeff and I did have to pull them apart on more than one occasion. Well, that's not good for a business. A business where, where the two people who, who own it 50-50 are just fighting, mm, you've got trouble. So when Jeff and I, we came back, we'd done national service, we did two years away from the company. And I think that helped because it gave us a different perspective on life. You know, life has to, you, you, you've got to look after yourself. When you're in the forces, you've got to do something that you, you learn. That, you know, mother's not there looking after everything, doing the washing. You've got to look after yourself. So when we came back, it was obvious to us. The family company was going downhill. And uh, so really, yes, what did we know? We wanted to do something ourselves. So it was really, it's recreate what grandfather created. In other words, open our own factory, our own sports shoe factory. So tradition, I suppose, as as I said, uh, may be a, a matter of need, but tradition has proved to be very useful because in marketing our company, we could really point back to 1895 and the success that my grandfather had with his, uh, with his spike shoes and, and his other sports shoes. And you mentioned there, Joe, the relationship between, between your dad and your uncle. Obviously, reading the book, you had quite a complex relationship with your dad too. So the, the quote that really stood out to me, Joe, was when you said, attention was a scarce commodity in my house. If I won, I got it. I was ignored pretty much if I lost. That was quite a sobering thing for me to hear. How did that dynamic with your dad affect you at that young age? And do you think it had an impact on you later in life? I think it gave me quite a bit of independence because I had to look out for myself. I probably spoke out a little more than my brother Jeff did. And uh, so it made me sort of a, a bit of the cheeky one, if you will, at the time, you know, He's the one. But we've got to go back to, you know, the pre-war. You know, if you think of pre-World uh, War Two, in, in those days, fathers were not seen that much. Fathers went out to work and the, the mother looked after the children. Mothers did not work. Mothers looked after the children. <clears throat> they, the father came home. He had his dinner or his tea, they used to call it then. And then he'd go off to the pub and just have a few pints and by the time he he came back from the pub we were in bed so you didn't actually have a relationship that grew it was more one mother looked after you and then and during the war um we didn't see that much on me either because he he was in the home guard at night so 
really the relationship was sort of almost uh, ships that pass in the night, as it were. You know, it was just one of those things. But that that was that was more or less how fathers were in those days. So father and mother relationship for me it, it was fairly normal. Do you think it kind of instilled a sense of competitiveness in you though, having that mindset and that idea that you wanted to succeed to win? to get attention, really? Or do you think that was always in you? I think that's part of your genes. I think you're born with this optimism, this desire to do something, to be different. I think you can learn how to be different, but I don't. I think the, the desire to be different, the desire to win has got to be there. As, as a youngster, you've got to have that to, uh, you know, I mean, I can remember as, uh, as kids, you were at school and you would do swap deals. You'd have a nice little car, somebody else had a, whatever and you know you'd always try and get the best of the deal <laughs> so i mean i was fortunate that i i was pretty fast when it was running i could i could run pretty fast even though i didn't want to run i could run pretty fast that, that may also have been in the genes that my grandfather had that you know, he was a reasonable runner but not the best well i was a reasonable runner and at school um well i mean can you imagine sort of you know during World War Two, even at school, I had spike running shoes. <laughs> I at eight years old, winning a race in spike running shoes, and of course, during that uh, war period, we didn't have any education. We had very little education. It was your mother things, and we had one or two women who were still teachers. But you know, all the men teachers, they'd all gone. They they were all at war at that point. They were fighting. So so education was a little sparse. So you, you, you grew up learning learning a lot as you could and with no television. So so you couldn't sort of do remote learning at all. It was whatever your parents uh, or your, your mother in those days could teach you. The the reason I'm asking you these questions is because the title of this podcast is the Olympic mindset. So the idea is that it's not just Olympians that have this mindset. It's people that have achieved wonderful things, inspirational individuals, people in business. And what we're trying to do is unpick whether there are common elements in the minds of successful people that we could try to learn from. And one thing that keeps coming up, the person that has been a success has had some sort of mentor. And obviously, the reason I was interested to ask those questions is because although you were surrounded by the skills and the tradition of shoemaking, you probably didn't learn things that you were going to do from your dad and your uncle because of the arguing and the dynamic. Where did you find those mentors? How did you find a role model to aspire to? <clears throat> well, I guess, again, it comes back to uh, doing national service. The Jeff and I, we, we did national service. That took us away <clears throat> from the family and probably a bit like going to university today for, for youngsters. This took us away from the family and we had to do things ourselves. So you learn how to ask questions. You learn... Well, what happens if I do this? Those sort of things, because you're not just following the family. You're now learning something. And then when Jeff and I did come back and we uh, we realized that the foster family company was really going down. And I, mean, I did actually say to my father, we, we tried hard to get them to see sense, uh, but it wasn't. And all my father could say, look, when I'm gone and your uncle's gone, this business is yours. You can do what you want with it. And I said, number one, we don't want you to go. That's not the that's not the plan. We don't want you to go. But long before you're gone, this company will have gone. This company will be dead. And it didn't make any difference. I 
couldn't get that through. So Jeff and I, we decided to go to college. That was, Bolton was about 15 miles away from Rossendale. Rossendale was, Rossendale Valley was the shoemaking centre of the north. And there was a college, Rossendale College. We went there because, okay, we knew how to make spike running shoes, football boots, rugby boots, and whatever you did in the premises at Dean Road there in Bolton. We knew that, but we didn't know really how leather was made, all the different uh, things you need to know. So we went to to college. And apart from learning a few things about shoemaking, what we did do, we made a lot of friends. We, We... we had people we could talk to. And these were the teachers, there were people who were also learning that. And that became a real source of uh, help. If we had a problem, when we left and we set up our own factory, if we wanted anything, where did we get this from? Where did we get needles, sewing needles from for the machinery? Ask somebody at college. So we would we would always have a reference. <clears throat> so... These were our mentors, and there was one, one guy in particular, he's in the book, John Willie Johnson. He, he was fascinating, you know, an absolutely fascinating person who, uh, and, uh, you know, it was great. What happened, it was just, uh, well, you know, 1960, in the 60s, all the industry, the shoe industry, was just downsizing. It was all going to the east. All shoes were being made in Asia, so it was downsizing. And one by one, the shoe factories going out of business, would, there would be an auction. And there'd be machinery, there'd be materials, and about one a month. And that's quite a lot, if you can think of it, the shoe industry dying off at one one a month. So an auction would come up. And I, and I met Johnny Johnson at one of these auctions. And, well... I'd seen him a number of times, but on this occasion, I sat next to him. He always used to sit at the front, and the auctioneer, he, he never bought anything. You know, when I went to want a machine, I'd bid for a machine, I'd bid for leather. John really never bid for anything. He just sat there, and if, if a lot just was passed over because nobody wanted it, the auctioneer would look at John Willie, and John Willie just nod. That was it. And so he never really seemed to buy anything, but <clears throat> he cleared the factory. <laughs> so if anything, <clears throat> and uh, it was one auction, the auction before the one when I'm sat next to him, and we were talking, and, and I'd got pulled over. I'd hired a van, cause I, and I bought a lot of leather, probably too much leather, and my van was overloaded, and I got stopped by the police and weighed, and I got fined, so I, I'm talking to him. And I said, John, oh, dear, I said, you know, problem, last time I had a problem. And he said, Joe, he said, uh, well, you know, this time and even and in future, let's come down together. He said, but on this time, if you buy anything, my men will pick it up and bring it for you. And every time he, he would do that. <clears throat> and on the next occasion when I was we were going down to this auction and I said, John, we're going down, I'll pick you up if you want. He said, no, no, no. He said, come here and I'll take you in my car. I think he knew my car wasn't wasn't really that reliable. But <laughs> he, uh, and, uh, and and so we we did this. He were, uh, but before we we left, I said, John, what do you do with all that stuff you buy? Because anyway, I mean, he bought everything. There were stuffed crocodiles, stuffed bird, you know, all these sort of weird things that were in offices. And so he, he took me around. He took me around his warehouse that he had, stored all this. And I saw a machine. It was called a pounding up machine. 
what it does is it takes wrinkles out of the leather and so that everything looks nice. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, oh, John, I could do with buying that machine off you if you sell it. And he said, no. Oh, right. well, can I rent it? And he said, no. Oh, okay, John. Okay, he said, you can have it. Just give it me back when you've done with it. Now, that was when he took mentors, people who help. And, you know, <clears throat> it's when people help. It did not be money. It can just be something like this. He, he lend, lends me a machine. But then he would ring me on numerous occasions. Joe, I've got this machine. Would you do? Would you like to use it, borrow it, whatever? And, and I'm sure on many occasions he would pick up machines that he didn't need, but he knew I needed because we, we talked a lot. So <clears throat> that's what I meant. Yes. You know, and, and these are the people from the college to John. And it's people. People will help you if you talk to them. At Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they have to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down, to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Pearson School Report. In the book, you say that one of his major things was he knew every staff member's name. He treated everybody the same. He, you know, he would introduce guests to everybody on the shop floor. Would you say that's still as valuable now as it was then? Well, I think to an extent, yes. I, I think it does. I think if you treat people with respect, you know, <clears throat> you don't need to be the one that has all the answers to all the questions. But if you can get a team together, that between you, you get all the answers to all the questions. It, that's so important. It's so important to, to get the right people. And I think with John Willie, uh, knowing all this, uh, I, could, I could never remember all the people that I met. It was like, no. In fact, uh, I had a great deal of trouble remembering people. And then we went to meetings and they insisted, have you got a business card? And then I could put a business card down and I, <laughs> I could get the names. But, uh, <clears throat> I mean, that, that was surprising to me. But, you know, if, if you've got that sort of memory and that sort of uh, way, uh, I did hear a story, and it's only a few weeks ago that I heard, where I was talking to somebody else about John Willie. And he said, uh, there, were, there were some people, they, they turned up with a delivery, but it was after hours. And everybody had gone home except John Willie. And, and the guy said, this, this guy just helped us unload, put everything in. And they didn't know he was, he was the CEO or the manager. They didn't know he was a boss. And they were, they were talking to somebody else. They said, oh, yeah, we met this old guy. He must have been a caretaker or something. And he helped us. <laughs> Unload the van, he let us in, and, <laughs> and they, they didn't know that, uh, that he'd done this. But, you know, it was that type of guy. He rolled his sleeves up and joined in. I think, um, do, do you know the one thing, Joe, that comes through so much in your book is your willingness to take risks and to, and to see opportunities that probably other people at the time didn't see. I mean, the fact you took Reebok from pretty much nothing to 
at one point you had Nike chasing you and obviously, you know, you, you spoke quite a lot about your, the reviews you got and beating them with the reviews. Is there a secret to seeing a good opportunity? Is there a secret? Well, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that we were lucky on numerous occasions. And I talked to people about luck and quite a lot of people say, no, no, there's no such thing as luck. It's being prepared for when the opportunities arrive. But, you know, I was also speaking to an American, and forget his name now, in New York, and we were talking about luck. And uh, he said, yeah, I agree with luck. He said, I am lucky to be born in America and to be born in New York. And, you know, <clears throat> I guess that's the simplest way of saying I believe in luck. Because, yes, you know, you were born in Wales, I'm born in England, and I think I am lucky to have been born in, in a country. <laughs> that could so when it comes to uh, taking those opportunities, uh, you've read the book, you know it took me 11 years to get my dream of getting into America. I needed the American market. 1968 was my first uh, visit to America, and it was 1979 by the time I got Paul Feynman and that was the beginning. To get the distribution in America, that's what we needed. But 11 years. So why did it take 11 years? Well, that's because the, uh, the luck hadn't arrived at that time. What, what needed was oh, running. In the late 60s, running became a big category in America. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to buy a pair of shoes and go out training and running. And from almost zero, it became massive. Probably 10, 10% of the uh, the people were buying a pair of running shoes and going out to And Runner's World, Runner's World, that was a magazine. And the magazine picked up on this. And I think magazine helped it grow, as well as Nike. Nike with earned. And Runner's World, Nike, I think Runner's World helped Nike. But, but Nike grew. They were in America. We were in the UK. We were too far, we were across the water. <clears throat> That's why it took 11 years. But by 1975, Runner's World magazine, from being just a single page, it was a nice 50-page glossy magazine with photographs telling you who won these different road races, where the next ones were. So everybody bought it. And it's when Runner's World decided, Bob Anderson, in his, in his wisdom, I mean, <clears throat> he, he must have been selling... God, how many runners will certainly 10 15 million copies every month incredible <clears throat> and he, yeah and he's, he thought he could tell everybody which was the number one shoe to buy and he did and he said that was nike which gave nike a big leap but <clears throat> nike are importing these shoes from japan and asia and to turn that tap up to turn it up so you could fill the demand, all of a sudden, big mm. demand, Nike, the best shoe. Well, at least 35 million, 35 million runners, three and a half million probably wanted that shoe, and he couldn't couldn't get it. Next year, <clears throat> Bob Anderson, in his wisdom, puts another shoe out there, probably New Balance. I don't know. It could have been Brooks, Atomic, or Sacconi, but he, he put another one out there. <clears throat> Same story. Then the year after, he changed it to star ratings. Five stars would be the best. He realized that one shoe didn't work, so we could have three or four shoes. And I knew, I knew at that time, we could make a five-star shoe. I mean, it was probably a little bit of arrogance to think that we could make a five-star shoe, but we, we knew exactly what we 
was looking for. <clears throat> and luckily, we did it. Yeah. We got Aztec, and Aztec was our five-star shoe. We well, did it. That's what got us in. <laughs> We've been pushing, pushing hard at the market. All of a sudden, the market wanted us. The market sucked us in, and that's how we got into America, which was the beginning of our, you know, America is the big market. If you've got a product, then that's the place to go. Get into the American market and fabulous. So it was fabulous for us. If you're a new head teacher and fresh to the world of school leadership, it's hard to keep all the plates spinning. We know we've all been there. When dealing with the daily operational duties, classroom cover, budget reviews, HR, playground repairs and finding our way through our own school's policies and procedures, it's sometimes hard to see the way forward and the important next steps we need to make. The most important thing to remember is that we all need to take stock and understand where the school is to plan our next steps on the improvement journey. Improvement Hub is the best decision you can make to ensure that the journey forward is well-informed, evidence-based and aligned with what you need to do, rather than what you think you need to do. Furthermore, it's so user-friendly, the weight of school improvement can be shared and supported by all members of your senior team and your wider staff. Isn't it time you shared the load? Book your demo today at twosimple.com forward slash Olympic mindset. It's too simple to get involved. You know, you've talked about uh, Paul Feynman there, Bob Anderson, and getting into the American market. And quite a lot in the book, you talk about the concept of gatekeepers. So these people that hold the keys to the gate to get through for success. And yeah. you, you said there, why did it take 11 years? Well, it probably took you 11 years to find the right gatekeepers. Yeah. What did you learn in identifying the gatekeepers that you can share with our listeners? <clears throat> well, I, I think that I learned this from Bob Anderson, really, in his magazine and five stars that we needed to get to the market. <clears throat> um Paul Feynman was the gatekeeper. He, he, he was right at the time. I had, I had about six attempts to get into the market, and I could probably name them all, of the yeah. attempts to try to get in. In fact, one, one guy, Shu Lang, he was a, a Russian immigrant from, his family were Russian immigrants, <clears throat> and I tried for four years with him to get into the market. But for whatever reason, you know, we didn't have enough finance, he didn't have enough connections, and so there were all these attempts that failed. And uh, Paul Feynman, fortunately uh, for me, not only had we got five stars, but for Paul Feynman, he was hungry. He was hungry. He needed change. He needed something. Okay. He had been running a business called Boston Camping. Boston Camping, this old tents, this old ground sheets, fishing rods, all the things you would need for outdoor. And he'd been doing this for 10 years with his brother and his brother-in-law. They just ran this company. And uh, he came to see me at uh, the NSGA show, it's the National Sporting Goods of America show. He came to see me when when I was there, and I, I could tell that he was, uh, he was a bit fed up of doing the same thing for 10 years. You know, the slow incremental rises, just doing a bit more and a bit more, but really he, he was going nowhere with it. <clears throat> and he said to me, Joe, if you get a five-star shoe, I'm your man. I'll go for it. So he was hungry. 
I thought yeah. at first we were going to bolt this onto his business, that Boston Camping, he would just bolt it on and we'd grow as part of. No, because the, the first time that I met him after <clears throat> we'd agreed that he could be, he would be my distributor. And when I went to see him next time, there was no more, no Boston Camping. They'd actually dissolved the business <clears throat> and gone their own ways and Paul decided he would, he would go with, with Reebok. And he was struggling. He was struggling because one of the things with with any brand is it takes money. And whilst Paul had a sum and yeah. we had some, we needed more. <laughs> we needed a lot more. And this is, I mean, today you've got a lot of ways of raising money. There's a lot of ways. <clears throat> but in those days, yeah, there were only the banks. Or if you could find an investor, which was very difficult. Fortunately... We found we found the money, and that was Stephen Rubin, who is now JD Sports. He's got a big company now. I think they're about a seven, yeah, about a seven billion pound company right now. So that was it. And he had just he was a <clears throat> he was a sourcing company. He, he had one or two things, but he was also sourcing product out of the Far East, which meant that. Our factory could produce a shoe, say, for £15. At Far East, we could produce it for £5. And it was just as good. In fact, in some ways, better. So yeah. you'd, now got, you'd now got money to spend on developing uh, your name around. You, you made some money you could advertise, you could promote. So with that money, Reebok was able to grow. And, uh, and you know, some, some things just work. <clears throat> it was a... Like Paul Feynman, I'm in his office, and uh, we we had the uh, the Starcrest, which was our logo on the tongue, and uh, Paul Feynman said to me, "Looks a bit like the Union Jack now. Why don't we use the Union Jack?" And I said, "Well, why should we use the Union Jack, Paul?" Um, and he said, "Well, everybody in America knows the Union Jack." It's going to take us millions of dollars for everybody to get to know the Starcrest. And it's that sort of thing that you think, wow. And I said, well, it's going to cause us problems in the UK. It'll cause us problems because anything with the Union in the UK, they expect it to be made in the UK. But and that, that was quite a fun period of time going through that. But in America, I mean, we put the... We put the shoe, put a Union Jack on each shoe, and we put the, the box. <clears throat> the box lid was a Union Jack. And we were still quite young, and we didn't have point of sale. That's stuff to put in the windows of retailers to advertise our product. And retailers just, just set the boxes up as a pyramid. And all these Union Jacks facing out with shoes on top of the boxes. And that was amazing, amazing promotion. It... Uh, a lot of the retailers just copied the idea. So we, you know, a lot of things like that. So as a gatekeeper, yeah, um, Paul, <laughs> you've read the book, so you know we had some problems. And I don't want to give away too much of the book because we want people to buy your book. But, <laughs> so, but the question I guess I have is, do you have any advice for me for how I can identify a gatekeeper? Is there something I should be looking for? You mentioned hunger. Um, you mentioned desire. Are there any other things you look for when you see somebody and you think they could be a gatekeeper for me? I think it depends on your product. If you have a product, um, then you've got something that, that you can share. Uh, looking for a gatekeeper, 
for me, um, for me, it was pretty obvious that I, I wanted somebody who was hungry enough, somebody who, to quote even Paul Fireman, has wrinkles in the belly, somebody, somebody who really has that need to do something, <clears throat> and that again is a is part of the DNA. Yeah, Paul wanted to succeed, so when you look for somebody, it's finding somebody who wants to succeed, because if if they just want to take a product for whatever reason or an idea. Uh, that's okay, but they, they must have that desire to succeed. Was it the same when you hired staff, Joe? When you hired a member of staff, would you look for hunger, desire? Were there any other qualities? Well, I mean, we we have two things here. One is as a factory. You just send employees who want to work at a machine. It's different from when my life turned, when I no longer worked in the factory. I wanted people to join me in marketing, in brand in knowing the brand. Yes, the factory, the people loved to, it's, once the brand took off, people in the factory loved to be part of that brand. They, 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 they took ownership. But in those early days, it was just somebody using a machine. Okay, like John Woolley, it was getting to know them so that they were, they were your friends. You know, we had oh, so many that would turn up on a Saturday morning <laughs> just because that's what they wanted to do, to come in on a Saturday morning and do so. Most of it was probably cleaning, preparation, and ready for next week. But they wanted to be there because they had friends. And if you if you can sort of engender that feeling that people like to do it, they love to be there, they want to be part of. And and as we grew Reebok, we, we developed that winning culture. And we had that winning culture. Everybody loved it. So it was easy to employ people. When you win in, it's, it's quite easy to employ people. It's because people want to be part of it. And that's good. So it's it, it's developing that winning culture. And, and I think you've got to be an optimist to do that. Uh, an entrepreneur has to be an optimist. Yeah I, yeah, I agree with that. I think it's very hard to become an entrepreneur if you're negative. You obviously set out to become an entrepreneur, very entrepreneurial. Every story in the book, you're entrepreneurial. You obviously had an eye for a gap in the market and you obviously had an eye for shoes as well. As you grew through the organization and you moved further and further away from working on the shop floor, you were more in the management position. Was that hard for you? And how did you deal with that? I think, I, I, I don't think you step up. I think it's there for you. You're, you're, you're doing it, <clears throat> you know. It's necessary, you can't sit in an office or sit a, or work on a machine because I started off working on a machine. You can't do that and drive a brand. So, you know, we uh, we were in the shoemaking business. That's why we went to Rossendale College. But we're in the sports business in terms of selling the brand. And so selling that brand in the sports business, taking those steps, it was more or less looking for the next step. Not hard. When do I get, when, where do I go next? Okay, even those 11 years, people say, well, how did you manage to stay with it for 11 years? Well, there was always something to do. <clears throat> I say I failed six times, so I'm doing a lot. Uh, there was always something to do. And, uh, and, I, and I think it wasn't a question of feeling you were leaving something. I think it was more of feeling it's like climbing a ladder. There's, you know, if you want to get to the top, you've got to keep moving upwards. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that that... It takes away anything. Okay, I used to visit the factory and say hi to the guys, you know, and uh, meet quite a few of them at any one time. But 
my visits to the factory became less and less. Yeah. And management is tough, right? Because you're dealing with everybody else's problems all the time instead of the things you want to do. <laughs> well, yes. And so for me, um, I think Jeff probably took care of that because all, all he was he he loved the factory. He just loved the factory. He, he wanted to do it because yeah. I know when we had a conversation, he said, Joe said that, leave the factory to me. You do everything else. <laughs> so <clears throat> everything else meant I was designing, I was traveling, lots of things that uh, that I had to do. But Jeff just loved the factory. And he had all the factory problems to, to deal with. Um, with me, it was a, a matter of, you know, you, you bring people in and you do get sometimes... You, you get the wrong people. Egos. Egos are probably the worst thing when when you're building the company because some of these people they've got yeah, they've got brilliant ideas, they they're good at something, but then the ego takes over. And you know, no, we're team. <laughs> you know, team doesn't spell ego. No, I there's no I in team. And, and you've got to have that team. They've got to work together. And and that way Everybody's working in the right direction, but with ego, there tends to be some something going to one side, and so I, I couldn't do with ego. Ego was a really, really tricky thing to deal with, and so is kind of toxic personalities. You know, the negative people, the people that would get involved in all the kind of arguing and gossiping. Did you ever have any experience of that, and what did you do to deal with it? Whenever I got that, I suggested they go somewhere else. I, I think it was a straight talk. It was. It was. It was a straight conversation. You don't fit in. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I, th- I think it doesn't need to be any more complex than that. Sometimes it's just being honest with somebody, isn't it? And telling them straight and explaining. Yeah, you can tell after a very short time, you can tell if they will fit or they won't fit. And if they didn't fit, it was better not. Yes. I do want to talk a little about the rise of Reebok. And then you did eventually crack the market in America you released the first women's aerobic shoe, which really took the market by storm and started to open all kinds of doors for you. Just tell me how that felt. How satisfying was that feeling Absolutely. to have battled for so long to create a brand that is now literally dominating the global market? Well, you know, when we got a five-star shoe and I got my distributor, Paul Fireman, I thought we made it. That was it. Fantastic. Now we're in the market. We want to be in that market. But when, uh, when Arnold Martinez came up with the idea of uh, a shoe for women, aerobics, then, I mean, I must admit, I'm like everybody else. Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure we need to go into that? <clears throat> okay, we'll go into that. And, you know, Paul Feynman wasn't sure either. It was Arnold insisted. And, and Arnold got his samples that he, he wanted from Steve Liggett, who was our, he was our production man. And... Uh, and then when the uh, when we stopped being a, a company looking for business, we were, we were trying to, how do we keep up with demand? For five years solid, it was a matter of trying to keep up with demand. Nobody needed to sell anything. It, that was it. All of a sudden, women had possessed Reebok. We were a small running company when we got into aerobics. So we were not big like Adidas. We were not big as Nike. They were male. They were sweaty. We were this nice little English company with nice Union Jack on the side of the shoe, and the women loved it. I, it was a marketing exercise for me because uh, 
Arnold decided that uh, we should make this in glove leather, something I didn't know at the time that he decided that. We had used glove leather, but we used it on a, on a road shoe and we used the suede side. We used it inside out, so we got the suede. Arnold, was, they were using the leather side. <clears throat> and if you think that glove leather is 0.7 of a millimeter, 0.7 of a millimeter thick, and then you, you take the surface off. You take that surface off so it will take an adhesive. You have something like half a millimeter. Can you imagine? I putting a hand into a glove is one thing. Putting a foot into it and then jumping up and down on it, boom, they just burst out. And so I'm saying, well, what are you doing? Luckily, this was America. Luckily, this was Los Angeles. They didn't care. The women just went out and bought another shoe. That was that's another stroke of luck, but that happened there. And uh, so what did they do? They lined it with uh, nylon. And, of course, <clears throat> the nylon didn't breathe. So I'm saying, look, it, you can't line it with nylon because the quality of leather is that it breathes, that it's comfortable. It won't breathe with nylon. So what did they do then? They punched a nice set of holes in the front so that it would breathe. The lesson is that the marketing people... <clears throat> You've got to listen to them. You've got to try and get the product right. But <clears throat> the marketing people, that was the big lesson. Make the product for the person. This episode of the Olympic Mindset is sponsored by Hue, makers of colourful, affordable visualisers and animation kits. Perfect for creative teaching, homeschooling and remote working. Described by many teachers as a complete game changer, Hue's high quality USB document cameras have won awards worldwide and they are also STEM.org authenticated. Hue cameras make it quick and easy to share work, record lessons or save time and money by not having to photocopy. The manual focus and flexible neck means that you can show even the smallest objects and nobody misses out because they can't see. Follow at Hue Cameras on social media for news, fun and giveaways. And for a limited time offer of 10% discount, please enter the code OLYMPIC10 at the HueHD.com shop. I bet that was a very satisfying feeling for you as well to really, to, to prove everyone wrong and to, to break that market. I'm aware that it took you a very long time to build this huge organization. As I've already said, from zero to something that eventually became worth four billion is, is, is not an easy thing to do. And again, talking about the guests we've had on the podcast in the past, Joe, every single person has made a lot of sacrifice to achieve their goals. So, you know, what's your reflections on sacrifice? Commitment. I would say commitment rather than sacrifice. You've got to make the commitment. Um <clears throat> You know, if um, if someone in the family wants to do something, you can usually put it off for 24 hours or maybe even a week or whatever. In a business, if it's needed, if you want it, it has to happen. If you miss that, you're missing the opportunity. You're letting those opportunities slip. Um, I think family life is something different. And I was married before I we had the business. And uh, that makes it tough. And although my wife... She didn't resist. She was quite happy to do things. She wasn't on the level. She didn't come in. So many times she could have uh, travelled with me, <clears throat> been part of the company, but didn't want to. She said travel made her sick, and possibly it did. I don't know. 
we did one travel and you've got that in the book and <clears throat> that wasn't a good <clears throat> that was a difficult experience it really was and uh, even even today i have to smile at it and think yeah well you know when you do come together and it comes together wrong but you know at the end <clears throat> she did enjoy a lot of it because uh, just before Kay died we were in Monte Carlo. We were, I was hosting the pro celebrity uh, tennis tournament with all the Hollywood uh, A-listers. Yeah. So there was a lot of opportunity, a lot of times that uh, she was able to enjoy. But that growing time, that time when, you know, all I hear from my wife is uh, the electricity man, he's been here, you haven't paid the bill. Oh. Yeah, and I, I was always away from my son's birthday because that was the time of the NSGA show in America. But, you know, the benefit was I would take him, <clears throat> I would take him back a toy from America. So, you know, there were some pros and some cons sort of thing. But, uh, you know, life, growing a business and uh, taking a family with you, I think depends upon if you can work together. If you can really work together, it can be fun. But uh, and I think I think there's more opportunity with that these days. I, I I think it's much easier to work together with your family and to encourage them to come along. Yeah, I agree. I think it is much easier for us now. Even the fact that if we want to get hold of something, we're having this Zoom call right now. We're able to talk over the internet. We can go on Google and find things very quickly. I think the era that you achieved this success in was incredible. And obviously, the fact that you've had to make all this family sacrifice as well is is a normal ingredient for somebody that has built something so big. What was the, the hardest thing that you had to do to make a success of yourself? What was the one thing that you look back and think, that is the one thing I would change? Well, the hardest thing was when my brother died. And he died just just when we'd got our five-star shoe. We'd just got Paul Fireman and we were about to make that difference. Difference is about to happen. <clears throat> Unfortunately for Jeff, he, uh, he he was also an athlete. Again, not the best of athletes, but he just enjoyed racing, cycling, um, and, and racing uh, in, as part as an athlete. But he he pushed himself too much, and at the end of every race, almost at the end of every race, he was physically sick. And I think that's what uh, he ended up with stomach cancer, and. But he was so fit that I think within about two months, three months of of finding that he had the cancer, he died because he 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 obviously kept himself going, even though there must have been pain there for some time. But he kept himself going. Now that became all of a sudden I lost the person who was looking after the factory, who was looking after product, and I was on marketing, and it took me three people to replace him to put three people in the factory. But really, the, the feeling that really sort of became the big one was, I need this to work now. I can't be the one to give up now because my 50% oh, of the company, my brother, has unfortunately he died. <clears throat> you know, I've got to do it, even if it's just for Jeff. So that whatever we got to, you know, we're now going to succeed. So it probably was the hardest time because you don't have that that person who was always there, who was always sort of, yeah, we will do that. You you don't have that person. But the one thing that uh, I could do, you know, when you get a family, there were two wives and two, it was Jeff and myself, and it was always trying to get 
for people to agree. What I could do, what I could do at that point is I, I just made all the decisions. And maybe I made a few, but I know, I know I made quite a lot of wrong decisions in the early days. I'm sure we didn't get that. But, but at that time, I think making those decisions at that time, I had to make them, and, and it helped. It helped because there, were no, there was no team to talk to. It ended up with just me. I had to make the decisions. Talking of those lessons, if you had to give three pieces of advice to our listeners on life and leadership, what would they be? Well, there are so many pieces of advice, but they, I only ever give fun, as that is the most important thing. You have to have fun. That's number one. Number two is you've got to have much more fun. And number three is make sure you're having the best fun you can ever have, because if you're not having fun, it's going to be tough. It's tough enough anyway, but you must have fun. That way you get over the strain, the stress, the whatever it is. You've got to have fun. So for me, it's, yeah, there, there are many things that you can talk about which you should have. But for me, there are just, there's just the one. Enjoy it. Have fun. Make sure that. Not every day is fun. Don't, don't, but, you know, it's again, it's being the optimist. It's being the, uh, the glasses half full, not half empty. It's looking at, at a problem. We had the problem. We started our, our, our business as Mercury Sports Footwear. And we were told to register it. It's in the book. We couldn't register it. So we had to change our name. And we came up in quite a unique way with Reebok. Four years into our business, we had a letter from the, the uh, lawyers of Adidas because our silhouette was two stripes and a T-bar. You know, you, you look, we looked at each other and thought, no, we can change it. Change the silhouette. And we came up with a better silhouette. So there's all these things in, uh, in the business. I would... if, if you could give one piece of advice to a Joe Foster, what would the one piece of advice be? I wouldn't change it except that if I could, uh, my daughter died and my brother died. If I could change that, then that would be fantastic. But, you know, <clears throat> the thing is that you can't step back in time. History is history. And you're gone. It's people say, what do you regret? And I say, well, I'm sorry. We did become number one. What's to regret? You know, it, it, and I think, again, this is where the uh, entrepreneur, the, the uh, optimist always has to think, yeah, I made mistakes. Probably I could have done it differently. But I don't regret that because it helped me. You know, mistakes help you make the right decision. And, and, you, know, you ask for what we're going to say, don't worry about making a mistake. Acknowledge it and get on. Get up and get on. So it is that continual move forward, always moving forward, and uh, just have fun. Joe, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Obviously, you know, your book is amazing. So anybody listening, please go out and buy Shoemaker. It's a fantastic book. Joe, thank you for joining us on the Olympic Mindset Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, it. It really has. Thank you very much. Thank you for the questions. And uh, stay friendly, stay in touch. Thanks for joining me, Dominic Broad, at the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by Pearson.
the world's leading learning company. Now, at the end of today's episode, we do have a chat with a very special guest, the owner of VSI. He's a former professional footballer. He played for Manchester City Football Club. And Tony managed to reinvent himself after his career and create this amazing organisation that allows ex-athletes and executive leaders to work together on high-level, high-caliber executive leadership courses. So we're going to have a quick chat with Tony today, hear a little about himself, a little about the organisation, and if you are looking to apply the Olympic mindset and develop yourselves further, then get in touch with VSI. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed my brief chat with Tony, and see you next time. So, yeah. hi Tony, how are you? Hey Dom, all good. Are you all, uh, you all set for Christmas? Yeah, well, I think so. I have to check with my wife. I'm pretty sure we are, yeah. What about you? Are you ready for Christmas? No. Oh, I'm a heck. Nowhere near it. <laughs> yeah. we, we've got five days. Yeah. You'll be fine, mate. You'll be fine. So this week's guest was Joe Foster. He's the founder of Reebok, building one of probably the most easily identifiable brands in the world from zero to four billion pounds worth of, of value, which is an amazing achievement for a, for a local lad from Bolton, son of a shoemaker. So mm. it was a really amazing interview and amazing insight into the world of what it takes to build a company. And obviously recognizing that you have, you've been employed by Premier League football clubs, you've done lots of different things in your career, and now you find yourself as the founder, the representative of, of an organization that is is internationally recognized for what you do. So can you please talk me through what it means to be an entrepreneur and the kind of challenges you faced along the way? <laughs> what it means to be an entrepreneur? Uh, where do you start? Well, the challenge. Well, well, let's start. What it means to be an entrepreneur? Um, I think you've got to be brave. I think you've got to be bold. Um, I think you've got to be someone that absolutely is prepared to take risks, albeit calculated risks. Um, but you've got to be in my experience, extremely disciplined to going after whatever it is you're looking to achieve. Um, and I, I think you've got to develop the ability to, to focus so your your mind doesn't wander off into, into different places. And I think when you have that entrepreneurial spirit, that can be, can be quite difficult to do because you're attracted by opportunities um, you're stimulated by other things that might be out there that you can see the potential in. But by doing that, you can often create um, a bit of a, a, a fluffy business term here, but but mission drift where you, you lose the focus on what you're actually trying to deliver and what you're trying to achieve. And then you spread yourself too thin um, and, and maybe don't really hit the targets in any particular discipline that you, you're working towards. So... I, I do think it's part of your personality. When I was employed in professional football, I did it quite happily for 10, 12 years. But I, I got to the point where I started questioning, is this how I wanted to live the rest of my life? Um, do I want to you know, get up at the same time every morning, get in the same car, make the same journey, more or less be on an autopilot? You look at our business, and and, and just for the record, I'm, I'm the co-founder of VSI along with my business partner, Andrew McIntyre. And from day one, when VSI started in 2012, we've done, we've sat in every chair of the business, be it 
the caretaker, be it the accountant, be it the lawyer, the marketeer, the PR person, the content developer, the IT person, so on and so forth. We've had exposure to every aspect of the business and we've been operational within the business. Um, so that gives you a, a great wealth of, of experience. And you have to accept that you are going to make some horrendous mistakes. You have great days, good days, okay days, and absolutely horrendous times as well, where it it really stretches you to the limit emotionally and, and, and psychologically. But it also generates and, and builds a great deal of, of self-belief in you, particularly when you've been doing it for over 12 years now, that whatever is around the corner, and I'm sure there will be some some bad days, some really bad days, you do feel that you have the ability to be able to get through it. It sounds quite a, an ominous task. And I think there's quite a few friends of mine, you know, I know that have companies at the moment or they're looking to open a company and they have a full-time job. What would your advice be to those people that are at the moment in a full-time job looking to make the step into running their own company or starting their own company? I was told by an Israeli businessman that I started working with many, many years ago, a guy called Yehuda Shiner, who worked with the England rugby team that won the World Cup. Building a business is not for everyone. It takes a, a different type of psyche, a different type of mentality. You are on your own uh, and you are responsible and accountable for, for, for just about everything. And it can be a a very, 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 very lonely place at times. You have to ask the question, does that align to your personality? So you've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and and they're not to, that's not to put a negative picture on what a startup company looks like or moving into that space, but that, that is the reality of it in most cases. Not in every case, obviously, but in most cases. And then the other thing I would say is that um, you, you've you've got to be, if, if you want to be great at something, you've got to obsess over it. There are no set hours of work. If you need to take a phone call at eight o'clock on a Sunday night, you need to take that phone call um, to turn around and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm out with a family or we're going out for dinner and so on and so forth. Um, then you're best working nine to five and being employed for someone. Um, if if you want to move into that space, you've got to be prepared to work every hour of every day, regardless of how unsociable that may be, um, in order to you know to drive your your vision for what that potential business looks like. And and I, I think it was Kobe Bryant. I think it was Kobe Bryant who said, if you really want to be great at something, you have to obsess over it. And and that is one real world piece of advice that I would throw out there to people that are looking to start up businesses. That's very much the reality of it. I love that. Finish on a Kobe Bryant quote. Right, before we go, can you talk us through the course, what's coming up next? Anything exciting on the horizon for VSI? I'm really looking forward to the next two days that we've got in January with Dr. Rob Wilson. Um, we're we're looking into various ownership models um, for sports organisations, and Rob, being an expert in this area, breaks it down into into five different ownership models from um, private equity funds to 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 states to um, PLCs to individual owners, and what that means for for the business model, and also 
<clears throat> what that means from a fan's perspective as well, i.e. as a fan, you want to see trophies and success on the pitch or the court or the track and so on and so forth. But obviously as a business, um, the investor wants to see success across uh, the multiple domains. So we've got Rob coming in who will be working through um, aspects of finance with us. We've also got um, Rob bringing in a, a, an international expert on non-refundable tokens, NFTs that a lot of sport organisations are getting involved in at the moment. Many of them are making huge mistakes with regards to understanding how you can actually drive revenue through F NFTs. And of course, the world of uh, digital currency, cryptocurrency and so on is, is, is all over the news at the moment. And then we've got the launch of our first online sporting directors program, which starts at the back end of uh, January. That's great. People are joining that program from all over the world. So we're, we're really uh, excited about that because it's going to have a truly international feel. Uh, and also in January, we we launch our second sporting directors program, which will kick off in September over in Miami in partnership with uh, Inter Miami, David Beckham's club. Amazing. And just to, just to summarise then, so there's a course in Manchester and a course in Miami. I think I'm on the wrong one yes. there. <laughs> yeah well you know what we were yeah you, you, are. <laughs> you are we were we were over at uh in february for the for the launch of the first program you know it's it's february i remember ringing home to the wife and it was minus five degrees here and i was sat in miami in 80 degrees so uh uh yeah you are you, you definitely miami or manchester that that's the perk of being a founder right you, you've missed that bit out all the all the negatives be you sat on a beach in miami you know enjoying the sun that there are some perks thank you so much tony for your time and i can't wait to see you again in the new year merry christmas merry christmas mate see you soon